For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to the latest Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Spudden. We're in the second edition of Major League Mailbag, which is a new segment that we're releasing each Saturday. Uh, where we will field questions from members of our Patreon community as well as our followers on social media about all things Orioles, Major League Baseball, and of course, if you have questions about the minor leagues, we will take those as well. But this is really an opportunity for us to focus on the major leagues as an add-on to the show that we do each week. Uh, as a reminder, if you're not part of our Patreon community yet, please consider joining. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month, and at the 5 and $10 levels, have access to our daily coverage throughout the season, which will be starting here in the next few days. And then for Major League Mailbag, you will have first dibs to ask questions, usually when we open the mailbag up on Thursdays, and you will have first access to these segments each week. And with that, I'm going to dive into our first question, which comes from Justin. For the whole year, if out of 10 starts, Braddis has seven like DeGrom and three like Patrick Corbin, is that a success? And then Justin puts this into a little bit different context. 21 starts on the year where he's lights out, giving up two earned runs or less and at least seven innings pitched, more than nine batters, more than nine strikeouts per nine innings, and then nine starts where he can't make it out of the fifth. And it's an interesting question, and I think the answer to that is yes, you would consider it a success because... Braddis is a second-year pitcher who has only 117 major league innings under his belt coming into this year. So that's still very much a development phase for Kyle Braddis. And if you can look at the end of the year and say, well, in more than two-thirds of his start, he pits at the level of a Cy Young caliber pitcher, then that's something you can build off of for 2024. So I would consider that a success. I don't think Braddis is going to be to those extremes this year. Um, but I, you know, if that were to happen, I would consider it a success. Uh, we'll go with a different question now here from Kevin Brown, which is, who do you feel is the most hated player in the AL East? It used to be easy with A-Rod or Jose Batista, but not so much now. Yeah, it is hard now. Um, I think about the rosters on the AL East, and there's not really anyone that I think rises to that level of A-Rod in the you know mid-2000s or Jose Batista after that. Um, so I, I, the answer to this question for me is that I really can't pinpoint a player. When I look up and down the rosters of all these teams, you know, I was rooting for Aaron Judge to go somewhere else last year to get him out of the American League East. But I kind of look at him the same way I used to look at guys like Bernie Williams, where it's like, yeah, he's a Yankee and I don't like the Yankees, but 
I have a really hard time like looking at him and just not liking him and not having a little bit of fun watching him play. Um, if you want to reframe this question a little bit, which is who is a guy you don't like the Orioles facing? I cannot stand when there is a tight spot in the game against the Blue Jays and Bo Bichette is up. Bo Bichette, for whatever reason, is just dialed in against the Orioles. I'm convinced that he could be over his last 30, come into a series at Candom Yards, and go three for four with five RBIs in the first game of the series. There's just something about that guy that when there's a tight spot in the game against Toronto, I don't want him up. And Toronto has, as we know, a really deep lineup. They actually subtracted from it a little bit this offseason, and it's still really deep. And Bissette statistically is not the Blue Jays' best hitter, but he is the guy that I don't want up in a tight spot. I'm hoping that this year the Orioles will figure him out a little bit because, frankly, since this guy broke into the league, I feel like he's had the Orioles number. Uh, We'll go to a good question here from Vivek, which is, which team is this year's 2022 Orioles? Who will make the jump from a rebuild? I think the answer to that is the Diamondbacks. They went 74 and 88 last year. And when you look at their roster this year, there's a lot of things that you can take as positives. They're going to have Corbin Carroll in the lineup every day. He's probably, you know, one of the favorites, if not the favorite, to win National League Rookie of the Year right alongside Jordan Walker with the Cardinals. I think they did well in the Dalton Varsho trade to get Lourdes Goriel Jr. and Gabriel Moreno back in that deal. And they have a really nice top two in their rotation with Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly. Now, that's a really tough division. And I think that, you know, they still, if you look at their farm system, a lot of their big name prospects are probably still at least a year away. Jordan Lawler, we might not see until 2024. Um, Drew Jones, we don't know how quickly he's going to come back off of that injury. But the Diamondbacks have a lot of things going for them right now. And, you know, If everything falls into place for them, I could see them, at the very least, finishing above 500 and maybe sneaking into the playoffs. If you want to look further down, though, another team that I would throw into this mix is the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I don't see the Pirates as a playoff team this year, and I don't see them finishing above 500, but you can look at their roster and and see where suddenly they could get a lot more interesting. What if Key Brian Hayes finally has a healthy season? What if O'Neill Cruz suddenly starts hitting? Uh, you have Brian Reynolds there for now, and if they at least keep him around for the rest of the year, that obviously makes them better. I thought to bring in Austin Hedges over the offseason was a smart move. That's a really good bridge to get you to Henry Davis next year. So the Pirates have some interesting pieces, and we don't know what's going to happen in the NL Central. I really don't know what to expect from the Brewers. The Reds should be bad again this year, and while I know the balanced schedule kind of throws things off a little bit, I could still see some room for the Pirates to get better. I think if they went out and they had, let's say, a 77-79 to win season, and they knew that they could have Henry Davis up in the major leagues next year, and that some of the young guys they have on the major league roster now could be better with another year of experience. You could feel pretty good about that if you're Pittsburgh. Plus, they're going to have that top pick in the draft this year. And if they do go for a college bat with that top pick, that could be a prospect that moves quickly and helps them out by 2025, let's say. So the Pirates, you know, things don't look entirely bad for them. And I think that this could be a year where they start to take some steps in the right direction. We'll go now to a related question here from David Adams, which is the Diamondbacks are getting a lot of preseason love. Can you compare them to where the Orioles are in the rebuild process? That's a good question. Um, I think that it depends on which part of it you want to look at. If you look at Arizona's roster, first off, you can look at Arizona's roster and tell that they never really did fully commit to that teardown where they're going to build up the major league roster where they're going to build up the farm system. Yeah, they held on to a guy like Cattell Marte. There were some murmurs for a while that they might trade Zach Gallen, and they didn't. The Diamondbacks, you know, as I think about them over the last 10 or 15 years, I feel like what has hurt them is that they're never good enough to get into the playoffs year in and year out. They've never been bad enough 
that they could reset, rebuild their farm system, build a good young nucleus, and then lock those guys up and keep them around long term. So in some respects, I think the 2020 and 2021 seasons could prove for them to be a good thing for them in the long run because they were able to get high ceiling guys like Jordan Lawler and Drew Jones in the system. I think in terms of graduating prospects, you know, the Orioles had Adley Rutzman up last year. Gunnar Henderson's going to graduate soon, although Corbin Carroll will too. The Orioles might be a little bit ahead of the Diamondbacks, especially because a lot of their top guys are actually starting the year out in AAA with Grayson Rodriguez, Jordan Westberg, Joey Ortiz, and Connor Norby down there, D.L. Hall there as well. So the Orioles might be a little bit ahead in that area, but Arizona also had better foundational pieces on the Major League roster, um, if that makes any sense. So I think they're in roughly the same place, but their blueprints don't look exactly the same. And as for the reasons that they're getting preseason love, um, kind of covered this with Vivek's question. There's just, you know, a lot of things that you look at with their roster. I think they did really well in the Dalton, Dalton Varsho trade. Uh, Corbin Carroll could have a big impact right away. The rotation looks to have some promise, and you could see where if everything falls into place for the Diamondbacks, they could be a wild card team. We'll go now to a really thought-provoking question from Tulsi. And here's a scenario that Tulsi poses. It's mid-July, the O's are in first place, and Jackson Holiday's consensus top overall MLB prospect, just like Gunnar Henderson last year. Would you trade him for a superstar-level player at the deadline? And this is a really good question. There are arguments to be made on both sides where you're in first place, you've got a shot not just to win the American League East, but a shot to go deep into the playoffs. You've got a good farm system. You can afford to give up Holiday. Move him to get that last piece for the Major League roster. Or Jackson Holiday is an elite-level prospect that could help you out for years to come. You should have the depth to not have to trade him. To be able to put together a deal that doesn't involve him, um, hold on to him, and try to get that elite level player without him in a trade or settle for someone else where you don't have to give up holiday. And the more I think about it, the more I fall in the latter camp. Because if Jackson Holiday is who we think he can be, you're talking about someone who is going to be possibly a multi-time all-star at the major league level. And someone, because he's going to get to the major leagues, who could move through the minor leagues quickly, and because he'll be getting to the major leagues at a young age, I think could actually stick at shortstop, at least on the front end. You know, after a few years in the majors, maybe he has to move all over to third base. Maybe he moves somewhere to the outfield. I don't really know, but at least at the front end, he might be able to stick at shortstop. And you would have six years of control of that player. And if he has the, you know, let's say a three-level season this year where he ends up in Bowie, he could go back there to start 2024. And it's not out of the question that he is in the major leagues by September. And that on the opening day 2025, he is your starting shortstop. And you have him under control for the next six years. And you have Gunnar Henderson right there next to him at third base under control for at least the next four years. So I would have to be, frankly, blown away to give up the prospect of that when I have a player who ultimately could extend my window of contention into the next decade. Um, now, there's, of course, some nuances to this. You know, does that elite level player you're trading for? How many years left does he have on his deal? Is it someone that you could or would want to extend um, if the possibility was there? And, you know, let's say that it's six years of Jackson Holiday for a year and a half of Corbin Burns. I'm not going to do that trade. I would like to have Corbin Burns, but I'm going to try to find a way to make that deal work without giving up Jackson Holiday, which probably means that you're dipping, you know, somewhere in that top 10 where you're giving up more than one infielder to go to the Brewers uh, back in that deal 
or you've got to dip heavily into that tier of prospects where you have guys like Dylan Beavers, Heston Kerstad, Judd Fabian, Cade Povitz, sort of that 10 to 15 range on our top 50 list, and all guys that could conceivably have strong arguments to be in the top 10 of the farm system after this year. You know, there is risk in giving up that kind of volume, but if at the end of the day, if you're able to hold on to a guy like Holiday, I would consider doing that rather than moving him. I just think that Holiday has the chance to separate himself this year from a lot of prospects in the game. And when you're hearing national outlets say that he's similar to Bobby Witt Jr. and Gunnar Henderson at the same age, but his offensive skill set is more advanced, and frankly, from what we've seen so far, I think that assessment is accurate. That's a really tough player to part with. And like I said, if he could be a guy who you have around and he extends your window even further out as far as being a contender year in and year out, you've got to find a way to hold on to him. But again, I'll concede that there's an argument where for moving him, where you've got a chance to go for it now. Maybe you get a player back that you can hold on to for a few years and you still have that window of contention. But I just think that Jackson Holiday represents the best opportunity of anyone in this farm system to really push that window out even further. We'll go back to a question from Vivek now. Out of Logan Gillespie, Michael Ballman, and Danny Colomb, who will stay even after Dylan Tate and Michael Givens return? Colomb would have seemingly the inside edge on the surface because he is left-handed, and I don't know how much of that is going to factor in for the Orioles, and clearly they see something they like because they went out and got him at the end of spring training. With that set of Gillespie pitches like he did on Thursday in Boston, then I think he's going to ha- make the decision really tough on the Orioles. And we know what Ballman is capable of in these short outings. He's got that elite fastball or the fastball that looks elite at times. He's got a good slider. The chains up looked pretty good in spring training. So, Ballman, once we start to see him in action, could have a really strong argument there as well. And I'll throw another caveat in here, and this is actually going to come up in a later question on this show. Maybe if Brian Baker continues to have kind of uneven outings, he's the guy that is sent down to Norfolk when it's time to make room for Dylan Tate or Michael Givens. So I don't think you're necessarily locked into Gillespie, Ballman, or Cologne as the person who has to go down when Givens or Tate come back. And obviously the way that they pitch here in the coming weeks is going to tell us a lot. But I would say right now that if the Orioles don't put that much value in the fact that Colom is left-handed, he's the guy that you would probably see sent down. But if they really want him as that other option, then they're going to have to decide between Glaspie Ballman and possibly Brian Baker about who goes down to Norfolk when Givens or Tate are ready to return. Different question here from Brandon, which is, who is your current favorite major league player, not named Adley or Gunner, and why? And I had to think about this one for a while, but I'm going to go with Juan Soto. I will always be a Juan Soto fan, and that's just a personal connection because I'm from Hagerstown. We had the Hagerstown Suns there for, you know, 2020 would have been their 40th season. And obviously the season got canceled. The Suns got contracted. And fortunately, there's an Atlantic League team coming there next year in a new ballpark that you're going to want to go check out. But um, Juan Soto was probably the last really star player to play for the Hagerstown Suns. And I remember seeing him for the first time in 2017 being really impressed with what I saw. Unfortunately, his season got cut short with injuries, and he actually went back there to start the 2018 season and, again, looked really, really good. Then he quickly moved up in, and I'll I'll never forget this, I saw him in April, and he was not in Hagerstown very long to start off the 2018 season. Then he moved up to the farm system, made it to double-A with the Nationals, then got promoted to the major leagues, and I was actually able to see him just a few months later with the Nationals at Candom Yards. And I remember watching him, and I thought to myself, it's only been 
you know, maybe eight weeks since the last time I saw this guy play. He was in low A then and was clearly the best player on the field. Yet just in that short span of time, he's become an even better player. And I think it was actually a few injuries that got him to the major leagues in the first place. But when you watch him, you knew that there was no way the Nationals were going to send him back down when you know those injuries cleared. And he ended up having a really good rookie season in 2018, finished second rookie of the year voting, came out the following year and had a top 10 finish in the MVP voting as the Nationals won the World Series. So I think he's going to bounce back from the quote-unquote down year that he had last year. And he'll be just fine going forward. So my pick there is Juan Soto, uh, just for the reasons that I mentioned. And uh, we'll go now to a question from Bob. And I guess it is the Bob, Bob Phelan, my co-host. He faced only one batter, but Logan Gillespie came up big and looked to have added a completely vertical breaking ball. Velocity up across the board, breakout season ahead. I think it's entirely possible because... We knew that the Orioles really liked his stuff when they put him on the 40-man roster after the 2021 season, despite the fact that at the time there seemed to be more obvious choices. You know, we weren't really talking about Gillespie at that point. We were focusing on guys like Nick Vespi, Robert Newstrom, a few others. So Gillespie's pick came as a little bit of a surprise at the time, but people like Eric Longenhagen really were high on Gillespie after his performance at the Arizona Fall League, despite the fact that the pure stats were not very good. And when Gillespie was on the mound last year, he looked pretty good. We just didn't get a chance to see much of him. So, and let's face it, the Orioles could have very easily left him off the roster at the end of spring training. They could have decided, you know, Joey Crable's first half last year, even if it was followed by a really uneven second half, and he had a lot of ups and downs in spring training, tells us more about what he can do with the major leagues and anything we saw from Logan Gillespie in spring training or in his limited stints in the major leagues last year. And yet they put Gillespie on the roster. So to me, that shows that they see something. And if you're looking for a bullpen arm that could break out, he's a guy that definitely should be on that list. And I think the Orioles are going to need someone like that to step up because as I talked about on Monday night show, I just don't know that they're going to get what they want out of Dylan Tate or Michael Gibbons this season. So if they could get Michael Ballman or Logan Gillespie to step in and fill the void, ideally both guys do that, their bullpen is going to be just fine. I'm going to jump down to our Twitter questions now because it kind of ties into the Logan Gillespie theme of today's mailbag. At Echo3451 has a question about Brandon Hyde's decision to pull Gillespie after the eighth inning on Thursday. Being Gillespie got the last out of the eighth, up three, why bring Batista in when Gillespie was already worn, gotten out? Uh, So basically, Echo wants to know, why not just let Gillespie pitch the ninth inning and bring Batista in if needed? I'm not going to criticize that move from Hyde because in the moment, I wanted Batista in the game. I felt that bringing Batista in in the moment was the correct call because... At that point, it had become a safe situation again. And it had been in the back of my mind when the Orioles had a bigger lead in the game. Do you go to Felix Batista in the ninth inning anyways? You've got the off day the next day. Maybe this would be a good way for him to get his feet wet in a major league game after not having a very long spring. You know, even if you're up, say, six runs in the ninth inning. Do you go to Batista anyways just to give him that one inning of work in a lower pressure situation especially knowing that you have the off day the next day. So in the moment, I didn't have a problem with that move. However, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if Gillespie can get out in big situations like that this year, I expect that the Orioles are going to use him more and more in high leverage spots as the season goes on. Look at how Felix Batista progressed last year, or CNL Perez. I could see Gillespie moving on that path this year where, He's going to get the opportunities early on to show that he can get those outs. And if he does it time and time again, you're going to see him in a lot of high leverage spots. Even if it's not in the ninth inning, I can see him coming in in the seventh, the runners on base or pitching the eighth inning to be that guy who in a tight game gets you the ball, gets the ball to Felix Batista on the back end. 
Uh, we'll go back to a question from Bob now, which is Adley Rutzman's opening day performance wasn't too bad. Can you share some of your favorite opening day moments and performances over the years? So the first one that comes to mind is opening day 2003, because that was actually the very first opening day that I saw in person. It was the Orioles against Cleveland. It snowed that day. And Gary Matthews Jr., I'll never forget him getting the walk-off hit in the bottom of the 13th inning to give the Orioles the win. And of course, we know that the 2003 Orioles went on to achieve great things from there in route to a like 70-some win season. But that moment was a lot of fun. And then I was at each of the opening days when the Orioles had that run from 2016 to 2018 of three consecutive walk-off wins on opening day. And I very vividly remember Adam Jones hitting the walk-off home run against the Twins to start the 2018 season. And I remember going into that season with mixed feelings because the Orioles had sort of tried to go for it one last time with Manny Machado and Adam Jones and Zach Britton. And you knew that that was possibly the end of the run. Um, And you could look at the team and you could come up with a scenario where they could contend for a wild card spot. Or you could look at it and come away with them being bad. Now, I don't think I saw them being ultimately as bad as they were. But even knowing how the rest of the season played out, that particular moment was special. That game against the Twins was a lot of fun. I will say, though, that the moment I knew the Orioles were in trouble that season was actually the next night. I went to that game, and it was the closest I have gotten to seeing a no-hitter at the Major League level. And the starter for the Twins that day was Kyle Gibson, who did not give up a hit in six shutout innings against the Orioles. Um, And I remember coming away that night thinking, yeah, the offense looks a little flat. Maybe this team isn't quite as good as we thought they were. And then things went downhill from there, but I don't think it makes that particular opening day um, any less special. Uh, Another question from Bob was, should Anthony Santander ever play the outfield again outside of an emergency? Thursday's performance in left field was brutal. There is no way around that. And I thought that, you know, if you're going to align the outfield with Santander, Mullins, and Hayes, you want Santander in left field because right field at Fenway Park just has so many quirks to it um, that it's not particularly easy to play. So if you're going to put him in the outfield, you should put him in left field. But he looked pretty rough out there last year. And we do see times where... He gets through a game, and he looks like at least a very capable corner outfielder with a solid arm. And then there are times where he'll get turned around on a seemingly routine fly ball, which is what happened in Thursday's game. And in fairness to Brian Baker, that inning that he had was not good. It was far from crisp. But the result is a lot different if Santander catches that ball that is hit to him. Um, So I pretty much... Didn't take away anything new from it, though, because I've been of the opinion since the offseason that this is a year where you start mixing and matching Santander a little bit more in terms of where he is um, defensively, if he's even on the field at all. Ideally, for me, we start to see Kyle Stowers in the outfield more later this year. He gets comfortable and he gets to the point where he's at least your everyday right fielder when you're home. You feel like he can play right field at Cannon Yards, which I think he's more than capable of doing. He just needs to go through an adjustment period. And Santander DHs more often. And when you want to give Ryan Mountcastle a day off or you just want him to DH for a day, Santander slides over to first base. So I don't know that I quite put Santander in the spot where you're only seeing him in an emergency in the outfield. But I do think that his use in the outfield should be reduced this year. You finally have the depth to be able to do that. His bat has come along to the point where I think that you can feel comfortable with him being your DH uh, more nights than not. So let's just say that Santander's outfield use should be phased out a little bit this year. Go to another question from Bob here, which is, Can you give a eulogy for each of the guys released from the minors over the past week or two? And there have been a lot of guys released um, 
you always see it at the end of spring training, and the Orioles certainly did that. Uh, just to read off some names that we found out were released last week, right-handed pitcher Connor Grady, catcher Wilkin Gruon, right-handed pitcher Tyler Joyner, right-handed pitcher Blaine Knight, right-handed pitcher Clayton McGinnis, right-handed pitcher Griffin McClarty, outfielder Robert Newstrom, right-handed pitcher Preston Price, left-handed pitcher Jake Prezina, right-handed pitcher Ricky Ramirez, left-handed pitcher Kevin Smith. We also saw some guys released that were sort of in that outfield, backup first base, uh, quote-unquote competition in camp in Curtis Terry, Francie Cordero, and Nomar Mazzara. Um, best of luck to all these guys going forward. Um, it's not, it's probably the ugliest part of the business, honestly, when guys are released in these situations. And I think that all of them were, you know, at least most of them were probably in a spot where the depth of the farm system was leaving them with limited opportunities. I think that that was definitely the case with Newstrom because you have so many outfielders between the majors, triple A and even double A that, it was hard to find consistent at bats for him, but hopefully all of these guys are able to, you know, find success and happiness in whatever their next endeavors in life are, regardless if that is baseball. And if it is baseball, hopefully they can catch on and have an opportunity somewhere to uh, reestablish themselves, uh, whether it's an independent ball or an affiliated ball, and uh, keep going. Um, we'll switch now to Twitter questions, and we'll start with one from. Jonathan P. Mason, which is, will D.L. Hall ultimately be a starter or reliever? Uh, That's the million-dollar question, and for right now, I would say that you're going to see him as a starter because I think the Orioles are committing to developing him as a starter, which I think is the right move. And I know that there are some fans who think that they should have just put Hall in the bullpen this year because stuff-wise, he could end up being your best reliever. And I can see that argument to a point, but if the Orioles do feel that he's a starter in the long run, or they at least want to try to make that happen, then putting him in the bullpen in short inning outings um, all year is not really going to help that goal because what would have happened was you would have gone into the offseason with that really pressing question of, do you keep him in the bullpen or do you move him to the rotation? And if you're moving him to the rotation, then you're looking at yet another year where you've got a young pitcher whose innings have to be really carefully managed, just like Tyler Wells last year, and just like Grayson Rodriguez um, when we see him this year. And 2024, the Orioles should be even further along in their process now. And in my mind, you know, should go in as playoff favorites and not just, you know, at least nationally being treated as some sort of novelty that no one really knows if they're for real or not. Um, and you want, if D.L. Hall is going to be a starter, you want him to be as close to full go as you can get next year. So I think to answer, to get back to the original question, ultimately right now I would say he's going to be a starter because the Orioles seem committed to making him a starter and his skill set where you've got an upper 90s fastball to pair with elite secondaries and the fact that he's left-handed doesn't come around very often. And in today's game, the idea of a five-and-dive starter where, you know, he's probably not going to pitch through the six most nights is not that big of a deal. 20 years ago, I think that would have been a limiting factor for him. But I think in today's game, um, it's really not that much of an issue. And I think that the Orioles, you can look at some of the guys they have now. I could see Kyle Bradis, you know, if things work out, being a guy that goes deeper into games, I think Grayson Rodriguez is eventually going to get there. So Hall doesn't necessarily have to be that guy. I think you can live with him going five to six innings every start, and you'll be just fine. Question from at David Precht. He wants to know, who will be the first international signing under Michael Elias to make the majors? The inside track right now belongs to Frederick Ben Cosme. Um, an infielder with really good bat-to-ball skills, an excellent eye at the plate, doesn't strike out a lot. So he's already got the intangible factors that the Orioles like, or not the intangible, the tangible underlying traits that the Orioles like in their hitters. Ben Cosme already has them, and he is only 20 years old. Uh, he's going to start this year out at high A Aberdeen, and I think that the two question marks for him 
are number one, can he hit for more power? And two, where is he going to end up defensively? I saw him play shortstop last year when I went to a game at Aberdeen, and I would describe his defense as rough around the edges. And it's possible that as he fills out, he fits in better at second base or third base. But I don't think that his defensive shortstop is unsalvageable. It's not where Ryan Mountcastle was at the beginning of his career, where you watched him and you knew this guy is not a shortstop. He doesn't have the footwork that you want from a shortstop. He doesn't have the arm strength. Ben Cosme has some attributes of a shortstop. I just don't know that it's his best position right now, and I don't know that it's going to be his best position long term. And the other thing is, as he fills out and gets stronger, will he start to hit for more power? I think he can do that because he hits the ball really hard sometimes. You may have to have the trade-off where the strikeouts go up a little bit and he's not relying on that skill set that he has where you know he can pretty much place the ball wherever he wants. He's maybe not relying on that as much. But I think it's entirely possible that he can tap into his power. So you figure he's going to start at Aberdeen this year. The Orioles as we have seen time and time again, are willing to pull the trigger on the move from Aberdeen to Bowie with these players. Um, Even if the baseline stats like batting average or OPS don't look that great because the Orioles know that Aberdeen is a tough place to hit. So Ben Cosme could end this season in Bowie. And at that rate, he definitely has the inside track in my mind to be the first guy signed under the Michael Elias, Kobe Perez regime to get to the major leagues. Now, there are some other options in the mix. Anderson De Los Santos may really break out this year. And I think right now, Samuel Basayo is the best prospect in that group. But because Basayo is a catcher, I think it's reasonable to expect that as long as he stays behind the plate, his development curve is going to be a little bit different than what you would see with an infielder or an outfielder. And speaking of infielders, I'll go to this question from at BJ Guntz. If our starting infielders continue to play well based on a one-game sample, does that make their trade value higher and get them help get them move to free up space, or does it make it more likely that the AAA prospects are traded? I would say that if you're getting production out of your group of infielders at the major league level this year, the Orioles are probably contending for a playoff spot because the Orioles hung around the playoff picture last year despite not getting a lot of production from second base all season and really not having a you know they had a lot of value defensively from Amona Rios but clearly the third base position overall was upgraded when Gunnar Henderson got there at the end of the season so you factor in those two positions being better this year I think you're gonna see a, a better season from Ryan Mountcastle and I think Jorge Mateo will continue to do the things that he does well like steal a lot of bases and play great shortstop, he'll continue to do those things well. So if the Orioles infield is producing, I think they're contending. And at which rate, you're not going to trade guys to try to sell them at peak value like you did in 2020 or 2021. You're going to be holding on to them. So that means it's more likely that someone in that group of AAA guys is traded. I will say that I don't think it's going to be all three, and it might not even be two out of the three. But if someone out of Westberg, Ortiz, or Norby is dealt this season, it would not surprise me at all. So I think in this scenario where the major league infielders are playing well, it's more likely that one of the AAA guys gets moved because the Orioles are competing for a playoff spot. John Hand wants to know, how long of a lease does Austin Hayes have? Ditto Brian Baker. Plenty of talent at Norfolk. Austin Hayes will have a longer lease than Brian Baker has because I think you sort of know what the expectations with Hayes are, and there have been times where he has met those expectations. The first half of last year is a good example of that. Um, you know, I know that the defense, the advanced metrics don't back up the eye test necessarily with his defense, but I think he's a guy that's at least capable. Um, in the corner outfield spots who can spell Cedric Mullins in center field from time to time when you need him to. Offensively, he should be better than he was in the second half last year. And while there you know, is a good group of outfielders at Norfolk, I don't think any of those guys are you know, immediate candidates to take over for Austin Hayes. 
our listeners know I'm very high on Colton Cowser. And as I have said before, I will not doubt Colton Cowser until he absolutely gives me a reason to doubt him because, let's face it, he has a pretty good track record of proving doubters wrong to this point in his career. But I think it's also clear that he has things at AAA that he needs to work on. Um, Hudson Haskin, a guy that I like, I think he does a lot of things well, but we don't know yet how he's going to perform at AAA and what his role would be if he gets to the major leagues this year at all. I think, you know, I know you do have Kyle Stowers and Taron Vavra up at the major league level, but you can get those guys at bats without it coming at the expense of Austin Hayes, or at least without it coming at the expense of Austin Hayes consistently. So I, I think that Hayes, you give him a little bit longer leash because you at least want to see if he can get close to what he was in the first half last year. And that buys you time to let guys like Colton Kowser develop a AAA or to let guys like Taron Babber or Kyle Stowers get more comfortable at the major league level and get to the point where you feel comfortable putting them in the lineup night in and night out. As for Baker... You know, as I talked about a little bit earlier, there's clearly going to be a roster crunch with the bullpen at some point, um, possibly in the next few weeks. Now, we know these things have a way of working themselves out, and they don't always work out the way that we envision them. But right now, it's clear that someone is going to have to go back to Norfolk to make room for Michael Givens and to make room for Dylan Tate when those guys are ready. That could change, but for right now, that's the circumstance that we're in. Baker has options remaining. He didn't have a good spring. His first outing of the season was a little rough. So, you know, and he's got some competition now in guys like Logan Gillespie and Michael Ballman that he didn't have before. And if they both look better than Baker over the first few weeks of the season, and Danny Colomb finds a role in the bullpen and the Orioles like having another left-handed option around, then Baker becomes the guy that is easy to send back to Norfolk. You let him go back down there, figure things out, try to get settled in and get to the point where you could at least bring him up for a couple of weeks later this season, either to fill in the event of an injury or to give guys that have been pitching in your bullpen all season a little bit of a rest and go to a guy who last year for the most part was a pretty good pitcher. Um, Now it's possible that Baker does what he did last year, which is He works through some really rough outings early in the season, and by sometime in the second half, you feel comfortable with him on the mound in a tight spot. But right now, he just isn't there yet, and I don't know what it's going to take for him to get back to that point, and I'm not entirely hitting the panic button yet with him. But at the same time, I think that if it doesn't get better, you may have to make that decision to send him down to Norfolk, and ultimately, you know, the timetables for Michael Gibbons and Dylan Tate for now are the factors in that, but we'll see how that plays out. Um, at underscore Griffin door underscore uh, 15 to one has a few questions here, which I'll go through. What was your impression of opening day? And should there be concern for the bullpen? I think everything on opening day, you know, the things that you wanted to look good, looked good. Kyle Gibson was effective on the mound, the lineup to me looked like an improvement leaps and bounds over what we saw last year. And it wasn't just because they scored a lot of runs, but top to bottom, for the most part, every hitter in the lineup was stringing together quality at bat after quality at bat. And Adley Rutzman as a number two hitter, um, and I don't, you know, I don't care to get into the debates of day-to-day lineup construction by Brandon Hyde, but I think it's pretty clear that Adley Rutzman as a number two hitter, is going to work really well. The bullpen was not crisp. The defense, especially the outfield defense, didn't look very good. I'm not too concerned about the defense because, you know, Cedric Mullins misplays a fly ball, but we know he's better than that. And we know that at the end of the year, he's going to be in the running for a gold glove award again. That's not pointing to any long-term concern. It's just a good outfielder not making a good play. Anthony Santander, as I said earlier, you shouldn't be relying on him every day in the outfield anyways, and I suspect the Orioles are going to get to that point at some sometime this season where he's not in the outfield consistently. So the concerns we saw as a defense, just chalk it up to a bad day, and even if the first week or two is a little rough, I think it will eventually settle back 
to where it was before. Um, and as for um, the bullpen, kind of the same area. Um, I think that as some of these guys get into, you know, get outings more consistently to settle in, I think CNL Perez looked excellent. I think that Logan Gillespie looked really good. Um, Keegan Aiken kind of held his own. It wasn't a great outing, but I think he held his own ultimately. And Felix Batista, yeah, I know that Brandon Hyde said after the game that he may have had a hard time gripping his splitter, which would explain why he seemed to be struggling to find the strike zone more than we saw last year. And I think that one of the drawbacks of him not having an extended spring is that you're going to have to deal with a little bit of a buildup early on. But I predicted that Batista is going to be an all-star on our show last week. And I see no reason to change that just yet. Um, and then another question here. Why haven't the Orioles extended Adley? And is John Angelos the worst owner in sports? I don't really want to get into the whole John Angelos thing. I really don't. I just don't have the desire or the energy to get into it right now. And it's for a variety of reasons. But um, as long as Daniel Snyder still owns the Commanders... The answer to who is the worst owner in sports is always going to be him. As for why the Orioles haven't extended Adley, um, I don't really know. Um, I think that from Adley's vantage point, it does make sense to sign an extension. But if he goes out and has an all-star season this year, that builds his leverage up even higher. And that's going to command more of a dollar amount from the Orioles. The Orioles absolutely should extend Rutzman. There's no question about that. I think from the moment he arrived last year, this became his team. And this is your franchise building block. I think it's a guy that you're going to be building around for a long time. He checks off every single box that you could check off with a catcher. And as long as he stays healthy, you're looking at someone who's going to probably be one of the best, if not the best catchers in this game for a long time. And then for Rutzman, you know, he gets to the major leagues a little bit older. I think he's going to be 30 when he hits free agency. So the payday for him in free agency might not, is not, probably not going to be as lucrative as it's going to be for a guy like Gunnar Henderson or for a guy like Corbin Carroll, who just recently signed an extension with the Diamondbacks that I think is team friendly for the most part. But Carroll signing an eight-year extension at a young age would still give him an opportunity to get a payday down the line. Rutzman is a catcher. Hitting free agency at 30 might be a little bit more limited, especially if teams don't feel like that bat is going to translate to first base or DH if he has to move over there. So for both sides, an extension does make sense. And I still think we're going to see one at some point. As for why we haven't seen one yet, I have no clue what the answer is to that. But like I said, I think there's an incentive for Rutzman to hold off a little bit longer if he can. What is Adley's OPS at the All-Star break and the end of the regular season? That's another question here. Uh, I'm going to say he has an OPS somewhere in the 800s this year. I think that's a reasonable baseline for him. You look at his numbers last year. He had an 829 OPS. I could see him exceeding that total again this year just by hitting for a little bit more power. So let's say the OPS ends up somewhere closer to 850 this year, just to put a nice round number in there. 162 and 0. Um, I'll stick with my 86 and 76 prediction for this season, but 162-0 would be nice. We'll wrap up with this question from David Adams, uh, who wants a overview of the upcoming series the Orioles have between the uh, Rangers and the Yankees. Those will be the next two series between now and our mailbag next week. The Orioles will start down at Arlington on Monday in a three-game set against the Rangers. Right now, all we know is that John Gray is getting the ball in Game 1, and Andrew Haney will get the ball in Game 2. The Orioles have not announced their probable starters yet, and we don't have either team's uh, probable starter for Wednesday afternoon's finale at 1.05 Central Time. Uh, the Yankees, meanwhile, we do not have pitching uh, matchups yet, of course, for that series because we're five days away. Um I will say for anyone who is going to the home opener, I will be there. Um, I had my spot pregame, and then I'll be in the ballpark. So if you're a Patreon or you're a listener, feel free to come up and say hi to me if you see me around the ballpark on Thursday afternoon. Getting back, though, to the two teams that are there, both come into the year with somewhat high expectations, although the Yankees' expectations are clearly higher, having won the American League East last year. Aaron Judd's the reigning MVP. I think, frankly, as his season goes, so go the Yankees. If Judge comes out and has another MVP-type performance, they're probably 
you know, going to win the division. I have him falling a little bit short of that this year, which is why I think the Blue Jays ultimately win the American League East. But good season from Aaron Judge and Garrett Cole, I think, are a must from the Yankees this year, given the injuries to their pitching staff. And that we saw the lineup um, was significantly different and significantly worse in games where Aaron Judge was not out there last year or games where Aaron Judge may have been silenced a little bit by the opposing pitching staff. As for the Rangers... um, they have spent a lot of money in the last two off-seasons. I think that now they're kind of getting to the point where things they could start to build a contender that is sustainable because their farm system has started to get a lot better. And of course, if Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker work out, that would help them out a lot, especially in 2024. I still think that they're at least a year away from taking that big step forward. But, you know, they could definitely make things interesting this year. And if everything clicks... They're competing for a wild card spot, but last year they spent a lot of money. Things didn't click for them. And while Jacob DeGrom could change the trajectory of their season significantly, they need him to be healthy. And we know that his track record with injuries in the last few years hasn't been great. So two tough-ish opponents coming up um, for the Orioles, but the Yankees definitely seem to be the tougher opponent. Uh, Should be entertaining series nonetheless. Of course, the Orioles continue their series against the Red Sox this afternoon at Fenway Park, and then we'll play the finale on Sunday. As for our coverage here at On the Birds, Nick is going to be um, providing a weekend recap of Norfolk series against Durham, probably either on Sunday or Monday. The Tides and Bulls had a very good game Friday night to start off the series that ended in a win for Norfolk. Those are two pretty good teams. Um, should be two of the best in the, in the International League, at least at the start of the year. So if you had a chance to watch any of those games this weekend, you definitely should. And then, of course, we will have our main show on Monday night where we'll react to the opening weekend at both Norfolk and the Major Leagues. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we have the rosters for the Bay Sox, Ironbirds, and Shorebirds, and we can talk about them on Monday night's show as well. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this Major League Mailbag. Uh, Someone else will have you covered next week, but this has been a lot of fun, and I look forward to doing it again soon. And make sure you tune in next Saturday when Nick or Bob will be on here taking questions. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.